Welcome to Essential Ethics, your gateway to discussion about the ethics of medical treatment for sick children. This podcast is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. I am your host, John Massey, Clinical Lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This podcast is part of a special series on carrier screening for inherited diseases. Genetic testing is opening up a whole new world of possibilities for prospective parents who wish to find out if they'll have a healthy baby. But at the same time, this new technology is generating complex ethical concerns. In this episode, we'll work through some of these concerns. I recorded this podcast about carrier screening for inherited diseases at a recent visit to the Truman Katz Bioethics Centre in Seattle. Just imagine you've brought home your newborn baby yesterday. He's beautiful and healthy, just as you imagined he would be. A phone rings. It's the genetic counsellor from the statewide newborn screening program. She tells you that the heel prick screening test, which you vaguely remember consenting to, is positive for a disease called cystic fibrosis. You've never heard of it before. No one in your family has a genetic disease. You asked your obstetrician for all the tests you could have so the baby would be healthy. You had Down syndrome screening and fetal ultrasounds. You feel your world crumbling before you. Through the fog, you agree to bring the baby in for assessment and testing the next day. You hardly know how to tell your partner. Today I'm joined by Professor Ben Wilfond, Director of the Truman Katz Centre of Bioethics at the University of Washington here in Seattle. Ben is also a pulmonologist, which is a respiratory physician in our speak, at Seattle Children's Hospital. Ben has a long history of working with newborn screening for cystic fibrosis and is a leading authority on the ethical issues associated with carrier screening for cystic fibrosis and inherited diseases. Ben, welcome to Essential Ethics. Nice to be here today, John. Ben, you've been involved with all sorts of newborn screening issues. Have you been involved with a family like this? We've had families who have had newborn screening who were identified as carriers. Although my experience with this was now over 20 years ago before carrier testing became routine. So uh, this issue is not quite the same as it might be now, where now carrier testing is, is more routinely done, which really began around 20 years ago in the United States. So in our experience in Australia... We have newborn screening, and this is exactly what happens. Families have a baby identified with cystic fibrosis and then subsequently find out that both the mother and father are carriers. They've already had some sort of testing during pregnancy, just as in this scenario. And then during the discussions find out, in fact, that there could have been testing prior to that. And many of the families feel distressed about that. Uh, Not sure whether it would have changed the way they went about the pregnancy, but for many it would have. Well, you know, what's interesting here um, is that and different carrier testing is available. There's different ways it's made available. And by that, I mean, there are some clinicians who routinely directly talk with patients about this. There's others who provide information about it. But in my experience, even when there are efforts to actively talk with people about it, only a small proportion of people actually choose to do this. So I think the experience that you're describing in Australia may be that that sort of alternative world that they wish they had been in. But in fact, when being in that world, they they make the same choice. 
that's interesting. So it sounds like, Ben, that things in the States are either a little different or maybe even a little further on than in Australia in, in the sense that parents are finding out that they might be carriers or being offered testing prior to the pregnancy or in the early stages of pregnancy. Is that right? Well, some parents are. In other words, parents can, if they want to, but most parents don't choose to do this for a variety of reasons. First of all, most pregnancies are unplanned. They're kind of focused on other things. And then um, it's just often not a priority for parents. So there is a very small population who have this notion that, you know, they're looking for the warranty on their child. So Ben, if we just take a step back uh, in case people aren't familiar with carrier screening. So firstly, what is an inherited disease? So inherited diseases are those diseases uh, that can be passed along from parents to children um, through their DNA. And those can be uh, diseases that are passed on from one generation to the next. I think the best example of that would be um, hereditary breast cancer in which that can be passed along from generation to generation and each generation may be affected by the disease. The other type of inherited diseases are, which is what carrier testing is about, is that carrier refers to a person who does not have the disease themselves, but if their partner is also a carrier of the same condition, there's a possibility that their children may have that condition or not. So Ben, is it possible to find out if you're a carrier of certain conditions? It certainly is. What can be tested for? Well, so that's a great question. So in different states and different countries and different clinics do different things. Carrier testing really first began in the 1970s with a condition called Tay-Sachs disease uh, that was more prevalent in Ashkenazi Jewish families in the United States. At the same time, um, carrier testing was also done for sickle cell anemia, which was more common in African-Americans. And one of the things that happened uh, in those experiences of the 70s was that there became an appreciation that this is not very straightforward that this, the information about this can be complicated to explain, and people's interest in this may be very much dependent upon their values. And while you described the circumstance where somebody might not know about it if they wish, but they might have wished they could have had it, we also see the opposite, where parents may really otherwise not want this, but yet it's inflicted on them without them being aware of what's happening. As a result, uh, the approach to carrier testing here has been much more gradual over time. Uh, so, so for example, the gene for cystic fibrosis was first identified in 1989, but here in the United States, carrier testing was not sort of routinely offered outside of research until the early 2000s, in part because of the need for additional social science research, health services research, to understand what the impact might be on families. Ben, you were at the, in a sense, the original 1997 National Institutes of Health conference mm -hmm. that discussed carrier screening mm -hmm. for predominantly cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. But fairly quickly after that, in about 2000, the American College of Obstetricians and American College of geneticists mm -hmm. suggested that carrier screening for cystic fibrosis should be part mm -hmm. of routine antenatal care? Well, yeah, yeah. The, the conference that occurred at the NIH was, a, was called a consensus development conference, which was intended to be a conference in which the, all the empirical research 
was being discussed. And it's a very specific process in which they try to have a group of people who are independent of the research, who hear from other people, and then deliberate and make some recommendations. And their recommendations were that there was enough evidence of possible benefit and lack of harm that adults should be offered the possibility of carrier testing. It still took a number of years for various professional groups to think about this, to figure out pragmatically how this might look. And so it really took a few more years for this to be done, which I think was actually a good thing because they took some time to really deliberate on on this. The other thing I would say is that even now, 20 years later, um, how this is provided or offered is quite variable from health system to health system. Um, and this is an area that I've been myself have been very interested in. Um, and by that, I mean um, interested in, in, in trying to figure out how best to ensure that people like you said, who would want this information, have access to this and can make decisions about it. And it's a fairly complicated thing because many people are not aware of this, even if they've been told about it. They may not remember it. So whose responsibility is it to tell them? Well, you know, that's a great question. I think there is a responsibility of primary care doctors to make some information available to people for those who want to know about it. But what counts as making that available could could vary, um, whether it's through a a pamphlet, whether it's through having a video that people watch, whether it's through having a direct conversation. I think the challenge is how to prioritize this particular piece of information with the wide range of other pieces of information that primary care doctors have to provide. So I think part of the responsibility is for clinicians to think about what they can do as part of this. I also think there's um, the other part of this is really through other ways of educating the public to be aware of this. Because again, for some people, this is very important. For some people, it's not. So I think the challenge is being creative about ways of giving people a chance to be aware of it. And I think part of it can be um, the responsibility of the families themselves to decide they want this information. I think, Ben, that's really hard, isn't it, to provide people with information, but then some people feel like they have a right not to know that things are available. Is this really, though, an ethical question? I guess we've talked about offering information and, and perhaps in ethical terms, we consider that as uh, respect for persons and autonomy. So there's ethics built mm-hmm. in there. Or is this just, is, is, are there more ethical issues or is this just a population health decision, uh, a no, government decision? I, I think it's very much of, I think with the ethical issue is how to do this. There was a very uh, uh, provocative paper written about over 20 years ago by Teresa Marteau that had this wonderful title of, uh, I think it was like supply push or demand pull. And the question was looking at the previous empirical research that was done in the 90s and noticing that the uptake rate of cystic fibrosis carrier testing was based upon when and how this was offered. So if you spoke to, if a obstetrician spoke to a woman while she was pregnant and says, I want you to have this blood test now, up to 80% would say yes. If on the other hand, the person was not pregnant and, and the obstetrician said, if you want information, come to this session at a different time and we will tell you more about it. 
the rate was down to 2%. So the choice of how you decide to deliver it is based upon an, an underlying ethical perspective on what you think the right answer is. So you, we can actually change the actual uptake rate based upon how we choose to deliver it. And so I think that's actually what makes it a very complicated issue. And the other thing I think from an ethical perspective that becomes complicated is the fact that now there's newborn screening. So you described the scenario where there seems to be this paradox of people have newborn screening, then they find out about carrier testing. However, one could actually raise the question of now that newborn screening is available, that perhaps carrier testing is less important because now cystic fibrosis is a disease in which uh, individuals live much longer. We have more effective treatments. And the whole premise of newborn screening is that by detecting children earlier, we can in- intervene better. So the, the, the context of offering carrier testing and newborn screening for the same disease becomes a very complicated issue. That's sort of a circular argument, though, isn't it, Ben, in that if it's bad enough to require newborn screening and early intervention and meets the Wilson and Junger criteria under which you might have screening, perhaps it's also bad enough, if that's the thing that we're looking for here, to require the offer, at least, of carrier screening. Well, we don't do that for PKU, which is perhaps the most common disease of which newborn screening is done. So there's not universal PKU carrier testing, which could be done. Um, Same thing for a wide range of other metabolic conditions. But I think you're right that even by saying it's complicated, it can go in both directions because one could actually make the case that if you've got newborn screening, that is a reason to do more carrier testing. You know, that the the two are not necessarily contradictory, but they can be complementary depending upon what the goals are. Um, I also think that offering carrier testing, um, if it's based upon a notion of increasing reproductive choices, may actually have an influence on newborn screening, because newborn screening is usually the opposite of giving people choices. It's making parents do something. And so the other flip side of all this would be to say, if our primary goal is information, we ought not to have newborn screening as a mandated activity, but as a choice also to be made, so people could choose carrier testing or newborn screening. And that's, a, that's not the world we live in. I guess, Ben, my perspective, particularly relating to the case we talked about, is that I'm very troubled by people arriving at information after the fact. So they found out in this family that both the parents are carriers. Using a test that's freely available, rather cheap, and could have been done before they had the baby with cystic fibrosis and the newborn screening people called them. And so in some ways, I think of carrier screening and newborn screening as just two ends of the same rope. And if you're going to screen for newborns, you may as well have the same diseases, at least in your carrier screening panel. You know, but I mean, I think you make a very interesting point. I'm just pointing out that it it hasn't gone that way. In fact, I I gave the example of PKU, phenylketonuria, which is done for newborn screening, but not for carrier testing. I'll also mention the example of Tay-Sachs disease that's done for carrier testing, but it's not done for newborn screening. Now, there may be reasons for that, but the idea is that these programs are also done independently. Newborn screening is done as a public health program, where carrier testing is done as a clinical service by individual providers. So the context is quite different, and that may be part of the explanation. 
What I don't know, John, is how many, as you described, for some people, they find this troubling that they didn't know this before. I don't know what the proportion of people who have that experience. In my experience, you know, now this is many years ago, uh, before newborn terror testing was routinely done, most parents were not as distressed as the parents that you're describing. Um, so maybe people in Australia are, have a different perspective. I on think this. that maybe they do yeah. have a different perspective, Ben. So we focused quite a lot on cystic fibrosis. Yeah. You've thrown in a couple of other illnesses like PKU. So what else could you screen for or, or what should you screen for? I mean, is there a threshold? What's bad enough? Before I answer that question, I have a question for you. I want to come back to what we are talking about before when you, we were talking about the difference between Australia and the, and the U.S., I guess I'm curious to hear from you, because with you describing parents being more concerned about this, can you clarify for me, it's a case that doctors routinely do not offer this, it's not available in Australia, or how is it available in Australia for people who might want carrier testing? Ben, in in Australia, we're, I think, not as far forward in the development of carrier screening for inherited diseases. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Victoria, the state in which I live, we've had a fee-for-service carrier screening program offered through private obstetricians and some shared care general practitioners. Mm-hmm. We test about four to 5,000 women predominantly uh, per year out of 80,000 mm-hmm. pregnancies per year. Mm-hmm. This has been steadily growing, but our reach is not great. Mm-hmm. Carrier screening in other states is almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. So even in Victoria, where for 10 years we've had a fee-for-service program, it's been well publicised and promoted, most people don't find out about it. Or don't do it. Or don't do it. In that regard, I think that's true. I work with some integrated health systems in the United States in which they are more explicit about making efforts to let people know about this, and still people don't do it. But when we've studied women in particularly public health clinics where it's not routinely offered because Mm -hmm. there's so much going on, Mm -hmm. but I also suspect that providers are making decisions for their patients. You're in a public clinic, perhaps you're not very rich, you're not going to afford to pay for this, so I'm not going to offer it to you. Mm -hmm. When we've asked them, 80 to 90% have said that they would at least like the information Mm -hmm. and be offered screening. So I think there is a, a bigger interest right. out there. But Ben, let's come back to the issue of, of what should we screen for? Well, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of discussion about this, and there's not good consensus about this. And there's a range of criteria that in the past have been considered for doing this. One has to do with the, uh, the nature of the disease itself. And even that becomes in and of itself an ethical question. What counts as a severe disease or a disease worth screening for. But some, some, something about the condition itself it often seems to be important. The other thing uh, that seems to be important is the frequency of the condition, just simply because of the, the number of people that you need to, to test before you have a positive result. The frequency also has an impact, depending upon the test, on possibly false positives and the relative proportion of false positives to true positives. And actually, the issue of what counts as a serious disease is very complicated because does it have to do with length of life? Does it have to do with cost of treatment? Does it have to do with whether the disease is a physical disease or a disease of cognitive functioning? And so 
different people will have different perspectives on this. So in fact, um, I was involved with a research project a number of years ago where we tried to get around many of these issues by using sequencing technology to offer testing for a wider range of diseases than is typically offered. And we chose up to like 700 diseases, which is way more than is typically done. We included and we placed the diseases in a variety of categories. And even the development of the categories was a very deliberate process that took us a number of months. But that included one category of life-shortening diseases. And, and the definition of life-shortening was people who die before the age of 10, mostly, so Tay-Sachs. The other is what we called serious diseases. And that included diseases like PKU and cystic fibrosis that require lifelong care. We also had what we called mild diseases that referred to diseases that had a smaller amount of impact on people's life, such as hearing loss. And then we had diseases that were variable in their presentations that could include a disease like Gaucher's disease, in which might be serious for some people, but almost have no symptoms at all. And then the last category was diseases that don't manifest themselves until adulthood. And what was interesting is that when we, our thought was that if we give people these broad categories they can, and we explain the categories, that might help them decide which do they want. So the first thing I want to point out is that the people who we chose to, to do this for the study were those people who had already on their own requested cystic fibrosis carrier testing. That was the basis for the idea. So it was a group that we knew were information seekers. Um, and part of the rationale for that, we wanted to avoid the problem of inflicting information on people. So our, our presumption was no matter what we explain to people, people will still be confused. But we figured if they already had asked for CF carrier testing, most likely they would be not uninterested in this. So a couple things we learned. One was that most people ask for everything because more is better. And that there were maybe between five and 10% who chose one of those different categories not to get. But even among them, different people chose different categories. Certainly the ones that were potentially chosen were the adult onset disease or variable or mild as ones not to get. But for any of them, it was no more than 10% who chose not to. They very much liked the choice of picking the different options. When we asked people later and they said they would not have liked had they just been given the choice of all or nothing. They liked to be able to choose even though they chose all of them. The other thing we asked them is how much would you pay for this? And most of them who had gone through the testing experience regardless of what the results were, found the information valuable to them. And they even said when we gave them a scale of how much they would pay, I would say the average person, again, this was a people with health insurance and some resources, often would pay at least $100, $200 for this and felt that was within what they would consider. So, And the purpose of that evaluation was trying to get some sense of value. What we don't know from that study is what it would be like if we offered it to a much more diverse population, not the information seekers, would they then still say yes because people can't say no when offered something? And then since in this context, everybody's a carrier for something, would that information be helpful to them or troubling to them? It's a fascinating study, Ben. That's the next gen study yes, where right. you've used uh, sequencing yep. uh, as part. And I want to come, come back to that, but uh, I think what you've described to me reflects some of my own personal observations 
And of course, it depends who you're talking to. You're talking to information seekers. But I've often found when providers are agonising about the offer that patients often just dichotomises. They want it, they want everything, or they don't want it. Right. I think you're right. And the whole agonising over pretest information and how much to give is not such a big deal. Most people don't need full-on genetic counselling for an hour or two prior to taking the test. They either want to be tested for things that are considered bad across a range or they're not interested in testing at all. I, and a, only a handful are left in the middle. I think you're right. I think it really has to do more with people's worldviews. I think in general, most of the decisions we make in most of our lives are based upon sort of our worldview and we take lots of... Uh, cognitive shortcuts of making decisions and information is rarely involved in those choices. And you're right, there is a group who does utilize that information. For most people, it's either a yes or no, regardless of what information is presented. The other thing that, that to me was fascinating about our, our next-gen project, because uh, we were offering things for a much more wider range of conditions, was the fact that we learned that people generally do handle this information relatively well, even when they don't understand what they're talking about. It sounds like a paradox, but there was no question in my mind that many of the parents were confused when they got the information back. And looking at the, the transcripts of the genetic counseling sessions, people were very much convoluted. Yet at the same time, they were okay with it. And there were maybe only a handful of times where people made very idiosyncratic and perhaps regrettable decisions about pregnancies. One of the excellent disorders is hemophilia. And so there was a, a woman in our study who um, had been identified as a hemophilia carrier and her child was affected with hemophilia. So when a child was born and at 72 hours had a, a bleed in his brain, they were, they were able to immediately intervene and provide uh, medications that really helped him. So I think there are um, examples, although it's still anecdotal, of ways in which terrier testing can actually have direct positive impacts on people clinically. And so while there might still be confusion and possibly some psychosocial distress, it's a balance. I think what you've described there, Ben, though, is the utility of carrier screening, even if you're not committed to termination of pregnancy. Right. But Ben, there, there are still so many ethical issues to, to consider here. So one is the, the timing. So I, I know that for a lot of people, prenatal testing, which is when you're already pregnant, runs the, the difficult decision of termination of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's possible to screen prior to conception mm -hmm. and then make different choices mm -hmm. by using in vitro fertilization mm -hmm. and pre-implantation genetic mm -hmm. diagnosis. Do you think that puts the onus on providers of trying to get to people prior to pregnancy to give them a better range of choices and avoid essentially what I call the icky well, issue so, of so here, termination. So here's, I think that's possible. I think the challenge is, is that before people are pregnant, that's not their highest priority. They're doing other things. We had one of our, our participants in the next-gen study who was identified as a carrier, and therefore we needed to have the other partner tested. And it was hard to get him in to come testing, even in that setting. And his, his explanation was, I need to get to the gym. And the point of that was that he had other priorities. So you can imagine that was a situation of the spouse knowing that there was a risk. So, so it's a very high bar to get. The other thing that I want to bring up is as you were describing the issue that families face 
with regards to prenatal testing. It depends on how those choices are framed for them. So if it's framed as you've got a big decision, you've got to decide whether you want to terminate or not, that may not be a neutral message. It would be the same message as when the average person comes in to their doctor and finds out they're pregnant. If the obstetrician said, you're pregnant, you need to make a decision whether you want to terminate or not. Are you sure you are ready for a life of having a child, of all the financial costs, of all the sleepless nights? This may cause problems with your spouse. We don't have that conversation when somebody comes pregnant. However, we might do that when somebody has a child with a disease like cystic fibrosis. And the question is whether that's appropriate or not, and whether that way we describe the condition gives honor to the experience of people who have that condition. And, and John, for you as a clinician who takes care of people with cystic fibrosis and sees the wide range of experience of them, you know, should we be describing a person with cystic fibrosis and categorize them solely based upon their disease and then think of everybody else as fine and these people as different? Or do we realize that all of us have challenges in our lives and our families? Ben, you raise a very important point and, and that is, I think, is, is about who are we testing for. So I think that a lot of the focus is on, is this a bad disease? What's the life like for the person? When you see a person with cystic fibrosis, you know, should they not be here? Mm. That to me is just not what carrier screening is about. A baby's born, maybe through screening, maybe they're diagnosed clinically, they're here. We make the best of it. We look after them and, and that's their life. So I think that carrier screening is actually about a young couple planning a pregnancy or pregnant and about their life and about the things that you talked about, about them having a child who's unwell, who's going to, for the life of the child and the time, absorb their time and commit them to what might be seen as the CF life or the PKU life or whatever. And people have different views about what they can manage and what they can tolerate. But it's about the parents. I completely agree with you. Not about the child to be born. I, I, no, I, I agree with you about that, John. But the distinction I would make is that what you've described, in my mind, is why it's important to offer testing. And, I, and I'm very much supportive of the idea of offering it. I think the challenge is then how do you have the conversation with that parent to give them the balanced information, particularly if it's a new family who has never had children before? The challenge I think we have of helping them make the decision that's right for them very much is based upon what is described to them. And again, I mean, I mean this very sincerely in my example of talking about the normal pregnancy. You know, it's possible that that's the right thing to do, that an obstetrician ought to have that really directive conversation with every parent because it's about the parent. But also that may not be right. And I think it's the same question, whether that's about a child with cystic fibrosis or PKU or a child at risk for asthma or, or a risk for breast cancer in the future um, or a child who does not have a specific disease, but we know that many children will have a wide range of diseases. And I think it really causes us to think about, both from the parental perspective, what we have expectations for about having children and 
what we think of our roles as providers. And I want to mention one more thing. I mentioned um, the paper by Teresa Marteau. I'm, I guess I'm stuck in the 90s. Um, so there was another fascinating paper written by Jeff Botkin in the late 90s. I forget the title of it, but he was talking about prenatal testing. And he had a, a section of the paper that offered two different ways of thinking about prenatal testing. And it had to do with how you view a child. And he gave the example of replacing a child and thinking about a car. The point was, is this a car that you have been saving for for many, many, many years? And you finally get this very fancy car and it turns out it doesn't shift quite right. Or is this car a gift that suddenly appeared on your doorstep? And it's a beautiful car, but it's got some imperfections. And depending upon how you're thinking about the car or the pregnancy may have a difference in how you view this. And I think the challenge we have is parents may be looking at this different ways and providers may also be looking at this different ways. And how we match that can be a challenge. So we all bring our own values, don't we, to the Absolutely. discussion and, and the way information is provided. Ben, I just want to focus on two things before we have to wrap up, because I think there are some ethical issues in actually in the lab, in the testing. Okay. Do you test for mutations you know they are going to cause a specific disease, potentially at the severe end of that disease? Mm-hmm. Or do you use a sequencing model and you get all sorts of information, so back to cystic fibrosis, a range of different severities right. based on genotype, right. but then also a whole lot of other things that you never even were interested in. Mm-hmm. How do you think we should approach that? What sort of model should we be advocating for that the lab should use? My short answer is I am more in favor of a more deliberate and focused approach on the more significant mutations and for several reasons. One is I think the important thing to realize is that cystic fibrosis, newborn screening, for example, has an impact on health, but the impact on health is not as dramatic as PKU. A missed case of PKU often has profound consequences on that child that are irreversible. A misdiagnosis of cystic fibrosis may have problems in some children, but many cases it won't. And many cases, those can be addressed over time. So I think the conditions are different. And so I think our thresholds for having a, quote, missed case are different. Secondly, by focusing on the more severe, significant mutations or variants rather than the less ones, the ones that you missed would be the ones that are less significant or less serious. The other thing is, is I think I think this is really important. When you think about sequencing and you include variants of unknown significant, one of the challenges has been in some circumstances the creation of a new disease of cystic fibrosis-related metabolic syndrome, which means you don't have cystic fibrosis, but you have a slightly elevated sweat test and you have a mutation or variation that is of unknown significance. You're not told that your child's a carrier. You're you're told your child probably doesn't have cystic fibrosis, but they have this other thing, and they have to be followed for a while. And I actually have a colleague who had a child with this in California where they do sequencing, and she was worried about taking her child to the swimming pool 
because maybe there's pseudomonas in the water. She was worried about drinking tap water because she might get infected. She was worried about every time the child coughed, does she have cystic fibrosis? So I think that there are even more significant potential for adverse consequences of false positives when we do sequencing and try to report all the information. So I'm much more in favor of a much more truncated approach. Ben, that brings me to genetic counseling. So I think there's a couple of things in that. One is, do you think that if a priori, when you say, well, here's a screening program and just for whatever, we might find things that are of uncertain significance, we're not sure, but we're not going to tell you about those. So when you go into screening, you know, a way around that might be, okay, we're just going to tell you about those. Mm-hmm. And there might be some other information mm-hmm. and we're not going to tell you. And that's sort of acknowledged a little bit contractual mm-hmm. almost up front. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a, an ethical, legitimate way around that problem? I think there's a lot of reasons to be limited on those variants that have been identified to be pathologic or potentially likely pathologic for several reasons. First of all, there are lots of variations in how things are interpreted, even among laboratories. And even using the same criteria, different laboratories will make different determinations of what those categories are. And I think as you move down the spectrum from pathogenic all the way to unknown significance to likely benign, and, and benign, there's, there's a greater amount of information and a greater amount of uncertainty. And I think if our goal is providing people with information about things that we have more confidence will cause problems, that's probably the, the better way to go. So finally then on, on the counseling, if we move to a situation where screening was popularized, it yes. was offered to everyone. Right. If you offer a lot of diseases, either focused yep. or with using a sequencing yep. model, you're going to have a lot of positive results. Do you think that it's legitimate just to counsel the couple to say you're at risk of this, which may be one or two conditions because you're both carriers, even though each of them might have two or three other things that they're carriers for and their siblings Mm -hmm. therefore might? Or in the interest of their autonomy, they should be informed of everything. But that's going to be a bigger and more detailed counselling. Well, here's what I'd say about that. That's a great question. First of all, I think they should be told about all those conditions that they've been identified as a carrier for, for the pathological variants. I don't know if you have to say a whole lot then about this. I think it's mentioned that it's happened. You may need to give them some resources. I think, unfortunately, we can assume that six months later, they will have forgotten this. This is one more thing that they had in their life, and they'll be moving on to other things. I think the biggest challenge with this is that we assume they spend their waking hour thinking about this. And of course, my colleague who had the child with cephalated metabolic syndrome did spend her waking hours thinking about this. But the average person, regardless of results, moves on to the next thing in their life and does not think about this forever. And more importantly, they'll forget it. And we we have to come up with better systems within our health system to track this information on behalf of families because we can be confident that most, the average person will not recall this information. I myself, I see doctors regularly. And, you know, I have a range of different serious conditions. And within three months, I can't really remember what they told me to do. So even a well-informed physician doesn't always remember uh, everything. So, Ben, I think that we recognise that there are, in fact, many ethical issues within the field of 
carrier screening and that 20 or 30 years on from the initiation of the possibility mm -hmm. of carrier screening, we still don't have it completely tied down. Mm -hmm. uh, the audience can't see me now getting out a rope and I'm <laughs> running around to the back of your chair and I'm tying you to the chair very firmly and I'm pulling it fairly tight just to limit your breath and to hold you in the chair. Ben, question to you, should everybody be offered screening for inherited diseases? Yes. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. This podcast was recorded in the studios of the University of Washington, Seattle. It was produced by the Creative Studios at the Royal Children's Hospital and Wavelength Creative. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired.